Well, hello again, friends. Welcome to the latest episode of In With The Old. If you've been following along with us, you know that last week we wrapped up our very first series, Something Old, Something New, as a kind of introduction to the Old Testament and what we want to do with this podcast. This week, we have a special episode in store for you. We're actually going to be answering some questions that have come to both Dr. Tim and I, and hopefully giving you some interesting answers to the questions you want to have responded to. So joining me today, as always, is Dr. Tim. Tim, how are you doing today, my friend? I'm doing well, Dr. Brian. I'm doing well. I'm excited for this and uh, excited to be spending some time with you. Excellent. So as I said, we're dealing with some questions. If you have a question that you want us to answer on this podcast, please feel free to email us at inwiththeoldpodcast at outlook.com or message us through Instagram or Facebook. We're happy to take some of these questions and we will collect them and put out episodes like this one from time to time. So these are I, I, looking through them, I found them quite interesting. Oh, yeah. And so I'm excited to hear what you have to say, and I'm excited to dialogue with these. You ready to jump in? Oh, yeah, I'm definitely ready. Let's do it. Fantastic. So I'll kick the first one over to you, Tim. So the question is about Balaam and Balak, right? So we know this story from the <laughs> Old Testament. What's the point of that story? Like, it seems weird, right? You have this prophet of God, but he's not an Israelite. Mm-hmm. He gets told that he can't curse Israel, but then goes anywhere and then keeps getting moved around. Can you mm-hmm. can you walk me through the story? What's the point of it? And maybe importantly, Balak's killed eventually in the Old Testament. Can you can you connect why for us? Yeah. So Brian, this is this is what makes the Old Testament so intriguing to us in a lot of ways, is, is there's a lot of mystery and, and there's a lot of drama and there's a lot of questions that, that really uh, sometimes are head scratchers and we have to, to dig deep to understand it. So uh, basically what's happening is uh, in, in the story of the Pentateuch, in, in the story of Israel, Israel's on their way, they're going to the promised land, and rather than being aided and, and helped by their you know kinsmen, the Moabites and others, um, they are thwarted, right? And they're basically told, no, you can't go, and we have Balak, son of Zippor, um, he, he basically rises up, they're terrified, they, they want the Israelites to be cursed, and so rather than helping and aiding God's people, they stand in the way and they become enemies of God's people. And so what they do, uh, and what Balak does in particular, is he hires uh, the, this sort of, uh, you know, divine gunslinger, so to speak, this Balaam son of Beor. <laughs> um, you know, I like this, that. The, I like that. Yeah, the prophet for hire, and, and he, he's apparently someone, and this is where there's there still is a lot of intrigue, right? Because he's someone who knows God most high, and he actually uses the divine name, right? I mean, he refers to him as mm-hmm. the Lord, as Yahweh, and so uh, he seems to be, in one sense, a true prophet, even though he's not an Israelite. And, and by the way, that's not totally unique. We have someone like Melchizedek in the book of Genesis who, who worships the true God, even though he's not of the people of Israel. Um, and, and so he's called upon, he's basically, you know, bribed or, or paid or hired uh, by Balak to utter these curses, as you said, but rather than cursing, the Spirit of God comes on him, and much to Balak's dismay, he ends up actually blessing Israel. And, uh, and Oops. Yeah. That's oops. a backfire of the plan, right? It was a backfire of the plan, and uh, and to Balaam's credit, he warned Balak and said, hey, you should have seen this one coming, but the, uh-huh. the thing that really intrigues all of us about this is that as Balaam is going uh, to meet Balak, 
at first, God says, okay, I'm not going to curse my people, so go ahead and go. And, and right here, uh, I'm in Numbers chapter 22, and then going into chapter 23. But here's, here's what it says in, in verse 22. It says, God was incensed that Balaam was going, and the angel of the Lord took his stand on the path to oppose him. Balaam was riding his donkey, and his two servants were with him. And as it goes on, eventually it says that the Lord opens the mouth of Balaam's donkey to rebuke him. And so this is the intrigue, right? This is why we spend time in Sunday school uh, telling the story and drawing pictures. Um, But the miracle is, of course, the Lord opening the mouth of the donkey. But I think even crazier than that is the fact that Balaam then has an argument with the donkey. (laughs) And uh, and he ends up talking back to it, at at which point uh, you ask the question, what is the point of all this? Well, I I think uh, there's a couple of things that, that come out. The first is... I think it's possible to be a prophet of God and to be, in one sense, a true prophet of God, and yet to totally miss the point of what it means to be a prophet. Uh, Brian, I, I think it was D.A. Carson. I couldn't track this down, uh, but if not, it was someone else who who is quoted as saying this, there's a level of stupidity that it takes intelligence to achieve. And, mm, uh, and I mm. think about that even for prophets, that for Balaam, he was called upon to curse the people of God. Well, he came to the conclusion that he couldn't curse the people of God. And so, uh, according to the New Testament in particular, he led them astray. Uh, and he basically said to Balak, okay, we can't go through the front door of cursing, so let's go through the back door of enticing them, seducing them to follow uh, follow idols and to worship idols, and eventually led them into idolatry. And, uh, and so, it, in one sense, it seems like the reason that God rebuked him in such this a stark way as having the donkey speak to him is because God saw his heart, uh, that here's a prophet who, uh, rather than honoring the Lord and rather than being an instrument in God's hands, he saw the opportunity for profit, uh, he saw the opportunity for worldly gain, and, uh, and in this moment, there's an irony that even a, a donkey— uh, knew better than this supposed prophet of God and uh, and rebuked him for his foolishness and for his greed. Uh, and so I think the whole episode with the donkey, as intriguing as it is that the Bible says the mouth of the donkey was opened, I think it's more as an indictment uh, against Balaam. Here's a prophet who, who didn't even know more than the donkey he was riding on. Uh, and as you mentioned, Joshua thirteen twenty two mentions that Balaam is killed in battle, uh, and that tells us a little bit of the rest of the story, right? That here's someone mm-hmm. who, in one sense, could have been used by God in a powerful way, uh, but in the end, it, it, it turns into a tragedy, where here's a prophet of God who, who falls from the heights, as it were, uh, because of his own greed, and, uh, and God rebukes him. Ultimately, he dies in battle and, and dies really in, in shame, and, and it's a tragic ending. Yeah, and I think you made a good connection there, Tim, that the, the failure of Balaam, on the one hand, isn't necessarily apparent, because you can read through Balaam's story and go, wait, he, he only blessed the people of Israel. Right. But the very next story after that, the women of Moab, right, come out and entice the Israelites, and you have this kind of mixing of the people, which causes problems. And you can put the pieces together that Balaam went to Balak and said, I can't curse them, but I can show you how to get them to curse themselves. Mm -hmm. Um, And so then we see this ultimate fate. And I I really like your point, Tim, that it's a tragic fate. Mm -hmm. Here is someone that did know God and boy, like so many people, um, a dumb animal recognizes when the divine is present, but a prophet of God missed it. And um, that's a deep tragedy in this story. 
Yeah, exactly right. And and Second Peter picks up on that. You know, Second Peter yeah. uses Balaam as an example of a false teacher, someone who has been given access to truth. But I, I think it's a reminder to all of us that our accountability before God is in keeping with our understanding. And uh, Balaam was given great access, but ultimately that just led to a greater downfall. Excellent points. So, Brian, let me kick uh, question number two to you. And uh, this this is a difficult one uh, in, mm-hmm. in some sense. It's dealing with uh, some heavy matters. And a lot of people have this question, why does God seem to kill so many people in the Old Testament, and both within and without Israel? Why, why does God kill so many people? Yeah, that's a good question. And as you said, it is a very common question that we have. Let me start by framing a few things. First, this is not just a question for the Old Testament. In fact, if you want to put body count to body count, Mm. with the book of Revelation, I'm going to say God probably kills more people in the New Testament than in the Old. It just happens to be that the New Testament is still in the future with the book Mm. of Revelation. So, But that is an important note. We often joke or hear references to going Old Testament or the God of the Old Testament. Well, no, God is consistent testament to testament. We just often focus more on the Old Testament. Now, why does God kill so many people? Let's make two points to help frame our answer. Two theological truths, Tim. First, physical death is a consequence of the fall, right? We covered Mm -hmm. that in our survey of the story of the Old Testament. Death enters into the world through the garden. Um, So it's a consequence of sin and of original sin. Mm -hmm. So if God kills someone, it doesn't get over maybe our emotional problem, but we need to recognize he's being no less than just. Mm -hmm. Paul makes this point, right? All people deserve death. It's by God's grace that people are going to avoid that fate. Mm -hmm. So that's important to know. Maybe secondly, too, let's avoid the world's view of death, which it's the end-all, be-all, it's the worst thing that can happen to someone. From Christians' theology, right, from our theological standpoint, physical death is not the worst thing that can befall someone. And this is maybe a scandalous point, a point we wrestle with with God, and that's fine. But I do think God doesn't view death, at least physical death, as the worst thing. It's eternal separation from him that is the worst thing that can befall us. So we have Paul in the New Testament talking to the church at Corinth saying, hey, some of you have fallen asleep because you are doing wrong things. God seems to go, you know what, there's a time where I might take you out of the world to prevent you from doing more damage to yourself and to others around you. Mm, So I I think these are both important to keep in the back of our mind. God killing people, that is within his purview, that is just. Physical death is also not the worst thing in the world, and we shouldn't necessarily connect God killing someone with God sending that person to hell. Those are logically distinct. You'd have to go story by story to figure out maybe that part of the connection, if that makes sense. Well, I just think that last point is really a great point, Brian. You know, that when we, and the whole thing, that when we think death, we need to think, uh, first of all, of the Bible's full revelation, that that is not the totality of our existence. And at times, death can be considered even a mercy. Uh, And so I just Mm -hmm. wanted to say, great point. Go go ahead. Okay. So to answer this question, like, fully to everyone's satisfaction, you'd have to go story by story, because each story has some unique aspects— Right, whether we're talking about what happens to the people after the failed assault on I, are we talking about the firstborn in Egypt? Right, 
every story is going to have its unique flavors. But what I want to do is maybe give two primary reasons that will cover most of these occurrences in the Old Testament. One reason why God might kill Israelites, those within the covenant people, and though, and one reason why God might kill people outside of Israel, if that makes sense. So yep. let's start within Israel. Why might God strike down a covenant person? Well, within Israel, God might strike down a person and by extension, his family. We've covered this before. This is the idea, right, of corporate solidarity, that people can be judged by their leaders. We hate it in this sense, but we love it when it's Jesus. So just recognize that that's at play here. Um, but he may strike down that person and their family for violating the covenant because it's not just a person doing something wrong. It's You need to understand who these people are. They are a kingdom of priests. Mm-hmm. Priests represent the character and attitude of their God. So when the people of Israel go forward, and we see this especially, I think, in the conquest story, we see it later in Israel's history, as the people of Israel sin, not only are they sinning against God, they are now portraying God to the world around Israel that God has a desire to save and to bring into relationship with him. They are showing that this is a God who is short of perfect. They are, it's a God that's faithless or evil or angry or murders or whatever, which might fit the Canaanite pantheon of gods, but that's not who God truly is. Mm. When a person in covenant relationship with God sins, they not only break faith with him, but they portray him as faithless to the world. And that's a very serious offense. We have safeguards in our society about identity theft, right? We want a person to be portrayed correctly. When a person in Israel might sin in some of these major stories, they are committing divine identity theft, if I can phrase it that way. They are portraying God to be something he is not. And this is one of the commandments, right? Thou shalt not take the Lord's name in vain. Sorry to say, that doesn't really have anything to do with swearing. That has to do with saying God is in something that he is not. It is putting forward his name as something that is uh, worthless or something that we just use for our own benefit, rather than saying we invoke God as he truly is. So why might God strike Israelites down? Because they are supposed to be his representatives on earth, and he is very jealous that he is represented correctly to the world. Yes. Which makes sense if he is seeking to, to redeem the world, right? And bring all people back into relationship with him. So that's within Israel. What about outside Israel? Because these are people not in covenant relationship with him. Mm-hmm. And yet God, I'm thinking of Egypt, strikes down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. Well, oftentimes we will see God strike down people outside of the covenant um, for obstructing his will and failing to acknowledge him as the one true God. Now, you might say that, hey, that's unfair. They aren't in relationship with him. They aren't in covenant with him. But Tim, this is where I I like that we actually start with Balaam and Balak. Mm -hmm. It's not just the people of Israel that could know that God actually existed and be in relationship with him. This is where our view of natural theology is quite important. Yes, Creation itself declares that there is a God. Paul says in the opening of Romans, right? that that is sufficient to make all people culpable before God. They should know he exists. And we see in the Old Testament, there are many that do. So we don't have a like Sinaitic covenant with people outside the nation of Israel, but that it doesn't mean they don't have any relationship or obligation to acknowledge God, 
to follow after him, to follow after his will. And so it's as they oppose those things, they are guilty. As God strikes them down, he's doing no less than what they and what all of us deserve. So uh, you put all that together, and I think that will give us at least a really good starting point for answering why does God kill so many people in the Old Testament? What are your thoughts, Tim? Yeah, no, I, I agree with that. And I actually like how you frame it, because the fact that God both judges people inside the covenant and outside the covenant really kind of uh, blows away the idea of uh, a genocidal kind of notion that that God is, you know, favors one ethnicity over another. That That's just not true. Uh, when, when God issues judgment, he does so upon his own people as well as upon the nations. And yes, they have a different level of accountability because of their different level of revelation, uh, but yet God can't help but be judge. And this is where I think maybe the biblical uh, authors and, and the biblical people in the Old Testament had such a different notion, there really wasn't a question in their minds whether God was within his rights to do this. Why? Because they believed he was the creator God and that life was not owed to them, as you said. And so in one sense, our offense to this is tied to our notion that our life is inherently ours, whereas they had a, a fundamental difference. They believed that life was fundamentally God's and that he gave it and he took it as he willed, and that was his prerogative. All right, and so for our last question today, Tim, I'm going to kick it over to you, and this is one that I find fun <laughs> because it connects uh, my Sunday school days and reading stories with some actual interesting questions. Mm-hmm. Tim? Why is Goliath the only giant mentioned in the Old Testament? Yeah, no, this is this is the story, right? All the way from Veggie Tales, God's bigger than the boogeyman, to every VBS you've ever been to in your life. The story of <laughs> David and Goliath. And uh, man, it's a great one, and we love it uh, because there's just compelling characters. But of course, Goliath is the giant of Gath, right? You know, the one who depending upon who you ask and depending upon how uh, how much your Sunday school teacher wanted to stretch it, might have been, you know, nine and a half feet or maybe 11 to 12 feet. It all depends on how you define a cubit. Uh, but here's the short answer, or at least this is my take on it, Brian, and I'm happy for you to correct me. But the short answer is, is that he's not the only giant that's mentioned in the Old Testament. Yep, uh, there you go. And uh, so it's actually fascinating. You know, he is a giant and he's, of course, one who is uh, so fierce because of his physical stature. But as we look to the Old Testament, there are actually other instances where uh, giants are mentioned, and perhaps they were related to Goliath, perhaps, and most likely, they were part of the same kind of gene pool. So we have uh, 2 Samuel 21.16, talks about a son of Rapha, uh, or a son of the giant. It could be translated really either way, either as a personal name or as uh, kind of a category of people. Uh, in First Chronicles chapter 24 through 8, it talks about several different giants. Uh, my favorite one is the one who is said to have six toes on each foot, six fingers on each hand for a total of 24 in all. And uh, But here's the interesting thing, is that they all seem to be uh, of the same people group among the Philistines, so that it, it was at least possible that there was a genetic 
uh, a genetic thing going on here among these people that either produced very large people or other uh, other things like six fingers, six toes. And uh, I'm the farthest thing from a geneticist, but that's at least how the Bible records it, is that there were apparently many giants among these people. And even as David was the first one uh, to slay uh, Goliath in particular, First Chronicles records others uh, who fought these giants as well, because these giants, as giants of course are, were known for their taunting of the people of God. And so you had to have someone like David in each instance basically come up and uh, and say, no, you, you cannot defy the name of God like you are. Mm-hmm. Uh, you may be a giant, but at the end of the day, the Lord gives victory. So short answer is, he's not the only giant mentioned, which again is what makes the Old Testament so fun. And so I want to riff off this a little bit and go down a rabbit trail. Yes. Um, if we start bringing in other ancient copies of the Old Testament, so other languages. So if we bring in like the Septuagint, uh, we could go all the way back to Genesis. And you've mm. got the the Nephilim, right? The fallen ones in Hebrew. Uh, they are occasionally translated in the Septuagint as the Gigantes, the giants. So we have this tradition of things opposing God being classified as giants. And Tim, as you very nicely mm. pointed out, there uh, Goliath is the most notable one, but he's certainly not the only one. But going off that, we also need to ask, what did they mean by giants? So mm. in the Hebrew, he is uh, Goliath is called six cubits in a span. And as Tim said, there's some debate over, well, okay, how big is a cubit and how big do we make him? But Tim, I'm sure you're aware of this. There's also a textual variant here. If we look at the Septuagint, if we look at Josephus, so an ancient uh, commentator on the text, they mention that Goliath is four cubits in a span, which would put him around 610. So there's something interesting at play. Height for humanity has changed over the years. We do know this as far mm. back as the Roman Empire. The Roman legionnaire was around 5'5", five, five. Um, so markedly shorter than most modern people today. Someone the size of a NBA power forward to them would have been gigantic. <laughs> so even beyond like uh, questions of how tall was Goliath and how many giants are there in the Old Testament, we also should make sure we aren't bringing our modern perspective of what is a person uh, to the Old Testament, because what they mean by giant might be gigantic to them. It may or may not refer to someone abnormally tall um, to today's standards. So I just wanted to kind of throw that out there, Tim, and just see what are your thoughts? Uh, Nephilim, Gigantes, or with the textual variants in the Septuagint? Well, I, you taught me something today, Brian. I wasn't aware of that textual variant. So uh, thank you. Oh, thank well, there you, you go. Professor Brian, for bringing that to my attention. So if you want the references, it's in 4Q Sam, so one of the Samaritan uh, Targums, oh, okay. uh, the Septuagint, Josephus, Antiquities, Book 6, uh, Section 171. All three represent four cubits in a span. And that may not be... So textual criticism, listeners, is when we take our various ancient copies of a text and try to figure out what the original reading was. Um, Josephus and the Septuagint are both very big names that may not carry the day. Uh, For six cubits in a span, you do have the Masoretic text, you have the Vulgate, the Peshitta, and the Targums. Um, 
so that I mean that's a fairly significant textual reading. So, but I just wanted to put it out there that there is an interesting variant of a shorter height for Goliath. So, sorry, Tim, didn't want to cut you off, but wanted to explain that a little. No, bit more. and that's why you bring your Hebrew Bible to class, ladies and gentlemen. But um, when uh, when when we talk about height, I do think it's a very interesting point that you make, Brian, because. Uh, we tend to assume as modern readers that the the physical world and, and even human physiology is the same. And as you mentioned, we know for sure that it was not. Um, and so as, as we think about uh, the biblical world, um, we just have to have that understanding that, as you said, what we assume to be giant might not have been giant to them. Uh, or, uh, and, and this goes back to even what the Israelites saw, right? When they were tasked to go into the promised land, you know, there are giants in the land or, you know, these sons of Anak or whatever, mm-hmm. like there are these references to giants uh, and we seem as grasshoppers to them. Uh, we, we just have to make sure we're reading it through uh, the very best lens possible. Uh, even even knowing, right, uh, that there are, there are uh, certain physical realities that, in every age tend to astound. And so, uh, yeah, thank you for pointing that one out to us, Brian. That's a good one. Yeah, just, and I don't know how much it changes our reading of any of the texts, but I do I do think there's an interesting through line. Um, if we take the idea of God judges not on appearance, but what is in the heart, as he calls his people to do things, constantly you have figures being described as giants in opposition. And it serves as a unique challenge, right, for the spies, uh, Tim, that you just brought up, for David. Are you going to be daunted by what you see physically in front of you, or are you going to trust that what God has called you to, you can accomplish? Um, and so yeah. that kind of adds in some fun flavor as we look at this going through. Yeah, it, well, and, and just, you know, like you said, at the end of the day, uh, we don't know exactly how tall Goliath was. But the reality is, what however tall he was, he was still a giant who was defying the armies of the living God and, and blaspheming the name of Yahweh. Correct. At which point David says, it doesn't matter how tall you are, I don't come against you with sword and spear, but I come against you in the name of our God. And, uh, and that's, of course, something we can take away today. Absolutely. So, listeners, these are just a few of the various questions you all have sent in. Dr. Tim and I will be, for the next couple episodes, answering these. And as I said at the beginning, if this is something that you would like your questions addressed through, please feel free to send those questions in to us. You can message us on Facebook or Instagram, or send us an email at inwiththeoldpodcast at outlook.com. Thank you so much for sending these in. Thank you so much, Dr. Tim, for sharing your experience and expertise in answering some of these questions. And listeners, until next time, stay old and stay cool.